question 
Instead, I want to encourage you to be joyful about serving and doing things that maybe you don't feel comfortable doing and stepping out in faith and trusting God that he will provide the things you need and lacking to then serve. And so I just want to encourage you with that. Um, if you would, uh, actually, why don't we pray and then I'll read the text and we'll kind of get into the sermon. Dear Lord, I am... I just want to pray for my brothers and sisters. I want to pray for those who are here for the first time, those who have been here for a long time, Lord. And I just want to pray, Lord, that, that you would bring them here, not to just come to a church, not just to come to a service, but to come to a place where they can serve. Where they can serve the body. They can serve the community of people. And when we do that, Lord, what we're reminded of is our weaknesses sometimes. We're reminded of our annoyances. We're reminded of our sin when we're involved in community with other people. And we want to run away from that. But Lord, I pray that these people would embrace that. Embrace, Lord, our weaknesses and trust in Christ for our strength. That Christ Jesus is where we get our strength. Not our personalities, not our skills. We get our strength from Christ. And how are we to be dependent on Christ if we're not put in situations where we, our weaknesses are exposed? So Lord, I pray for those who are here, Lord. If there, if there are people who have been here for a while and aren't really serving in any major way, Lord, I pray that you would that you would kind of push them out, Lord, push them out of their comfort zone, and Lord, look for opportunities to serve. Serve areas that maybe they don't immediately call to, but maybe there's a need there, and they can fill that need. They can provide a service. They can provide love. They can provide a voice, or they can provide hands and feet, Lord, to something. And Lord, I pray that you would bless them and teach them in those situations. Lord, we pray for just um, churches on the west side this morning, Lord, as as they uh, look to engage USI's campus and try to get students involved in their churches, Lord. Lord, I pray, Lord, for the churches, Lord, that we are encouraged by, that, that you would see a lot of students just getting involved in churches. Westwood, Lord, or um, uh, Redeemer. I'm trying to think of all the churches on the west side that I recommend people to, Lord. But, Lord, I pray, Lord, uh, that you would uh, send students to those churches. Lord, we love you, Lord. We praise you. We pray for this morning, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would speak through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> you have a Bible. I'm in the last chapter of Ecclesiastes. This is the last sermon on this series. I think for you uh, Campus Outreach Project people, your church you went to went to Ecclesiastes. I know Ryan's dead. I don't know about yours, but I'll Ah, so Ryan's on board here. He's he's been he's been a part of this all all summer. So we've been going through the book of Ecclesiastes. We're on the last chapter of Ecclesiastes, and uh, I just want to quickly thank Stan Berenger for preaching last week. And um, he we Stan got the two got two chapters to preach through, um, where all of us only got one. And uh, and so I knew he could handle it. He definitely did handle it. And uh, thank you so much for preaching. Stan had a busy summer, right? We not only did he preach this past week, we had him leading the, the Thursday night growth group, and he continued to do his Sunday school class on Sunday. So we kept him pretty busy this summer, and uh, he's never complained or grumbled in any way. And uh, has always been available to serve. And uh, so thank you so much for the summer. And um, if you missed a lot of that Thursday series on evangelism, uh, Stan can send you the, the, the notes. He had it all set out on PowerPoint, and I want to encourage you to take advantage of that and uh, learning how to share your faith. And we just want to encourage you um, to ask us uh, how we can help you and how you can share your faith. So Ecclesiastes chapter 12, and I'm actually only going to bring the, the, the kind of the tail end of this. And it says this sermon is going to act not only as a chapter 12 uh, analysis, but also analysis of the whole book. So um, chapter 12, starting in verse 8. 
Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also talks to people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher thought to find words of delight, and upwardly he wrote words of truth. But the words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collective sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books. There is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is God's word for his people this morning. And uh, I want to start off, I've titled this sermon, uh, Adventures of Tom Bobadale, The Call of a Childlike Faith. And we put the picture... This is one of my favorite pictures of all time. Um, obviously, this is my son Lincoln. This is my daughter Maggie. I like it because they're both in play, right? I mean, like, it's a caption of childhood, right? It's perfect. Like, I love Lincoln's face. Like, it kind of, like, personifies his personality all at his one, one, one image. And it's just great. Don't you, when you look at this picture, don't you want to be a kid again? Like, you just want to be at a kid, and you want to have this carefree attitude about yourself. You're not really worried about anything. You're not worried about mortgage or your job. You're not worried about uh, uh, paying the bills. You're not worried about anything. You're just having fun, right? You're just enjoying the sun. You're enjoying the summer. You're enjoying being free and innocent. And I bring that up because there's times in my life that I ask the question, who am I? And you may look at me and go, who is this guy? Who is this guy named Matt Castro? What, what is he about? And, and sometimes, you know, some of you may see the side of me that's playful and joy, joyous and wants to have a good time and relax. But you also will know the agenda-driven, people-pleasing, success-starved Matt. Right? There, there's like these two things, and what are you going to get that day? Are you going to get the joyous Matt or the one that's too serious? And maybe us, we can kind of resonate with that, that we sometimes can can be very joyful, very playful, very relaxed, very at peace, and at other times, that's the opposite of what we are. And sometimes when I'm interacting with my kids, I can sometimes be this way. I can be playful and joyful dad, or mean, angry, grumbling dad, right? And, and the, obviously, if you're a dad, you don't want to be the grumbling dad, but sometimes it just comes out at you, right? It just comes out because you're stressed, or you're just not patient, and you forget to be joyous and playful dad. I, I enjoy playing with my kids, and, and plus I enjoy playing with Lincoln because he's a boy, and I'm a boy, and we get to play. And the other day, we, play, we built a robot at his walk, right? And, and what we did was we had a discussion about how many guns the robot was going to have, and we set him on six. Like, it needed six guns to be the perfect robot for protecting his room, right? He needed six guns, not two, not four, six guns. And that is... You know, you, as, a, as his father, you almost forget that you're an adult in those situations. You just start being a kid again, and you enjoy the interaction. You enjoy the playfulness. And I'm thinking of uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6. You know when, Matt, when David came out and was singing and celebrating to God and was joyous, and his wife, Saul's daughter, rebuked him for that? And he says, how dare you rebuke me for celebrating God, right? This playfulness. 
And I wonder where we would we say the same thing today, but how dare you, a king, would you come outside in your garments dancing and singing? How unprofessional. There's a desire and I think a need of the wonder and beauty of childlike faith. What does it mean to have an imagination? What does it mean to be a child? This is from a, from a book talking about childhood. It says, the imagination opens up not principally to what it knows and finds familiar, but to what it does not know, what it finds strange, half-hidden, robed with an accessible light. As, and as for God himself, which greater object of wonder can there be than one who is not the greatest thing in the world? But beyond the world, for whom all things great and small declare, he made us and we did not make ourselves. When we imagine, when we wonder, when we play, we live out God's command to Adam and Eve to enjoy his creation and his word, right? To enjoy God's world. To play is the heart seeking out something beyond itself, a beauty or a power that is not its own. If we love children, we love, we have, we have, a, I have a few children, I love children, love being around children. We, we, we are captivated by their love of wonder with which they behold the world, in which would hope that some of it might open our own eyes a little, right? Of the wonder of God's creation. We would love their games, and we'd want to play them once in a while, sharing in ourselves those memories of play that no one regrets, and that are almost the only things an old man can look back on with complete satisfaction. We would want children tagging along after us, but not then only because we would understand that they had a better thing to do. That we almost need to be around children, right? Because we need to be reminded of what's actually important. Not about money and about toil and about the things of this world, but just enjoying God's creation. I don't know if any of y'all have seen Citizen Kane. It's considered one of the greatest movies ever made. Uh, it's black and white, so most likely most of you have not seen it because no one watches black and white movies. But it was a movie made long ago. And uh, there's a the great scene is at the end of the movie where Citizen Kane, or Charles Kane, the the kind of the, the, the character of the story, he's kind of a bad guy. He's mentioned before he dies, Rosebud. The, he just says Rosebud. And, and there's a, and basically the whole movie is about a biographer who's writing a story about this man, this wealthy, powerful man who had passed away, and his last words are Rosebud, and they don't know why he would say Rosebud. Like, what is Rosebud? Is it a woman? Is it, what is Rosebud? And at the end of the you kind of are able to understand that Rosebud was a sled that he had as a child. And he is, he is, he is sad about his loss of childhood, that losing those memories, and he remembers that that was the happiest ever was in his life, was not when he had all this money and all this wealth and all this power, was when he was carefree and just being a child was the happiest moment of his life. And really, this is the context of the entire book of Ecclesiastes that this preacher, this man, is trying to observe all that's under the sun, and he recognizes that it's all meaningless, that it has no value whatsoever. And at the end of Ecclesiastes, um, I don't believe that this is the writer of the book. And this is almost a commentary, someone, kind of at the beginning of the book, someone talking about and summarizing the book of Ecclesiastes. Let me just go to the first chapter, Ecclesiastes chapter 1. It says, The word of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. Again, this is talking about the preacher. This isn't the words of the preacher. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanity is all of vanity. 
What does a man gain by all the toil in which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down, the hasten hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the winds return. So the, the, this, this commentary, as the person is commentating, is basically summarizing the entire work of the preacher. And so the narrator returns and kind of gives his summary or his kind of conclusion to all the words of the preacher. He says in the verse, verse in chapter 12, verse 8, all vanity of vanity, all is vanity, right? He, he basically summarizes or repeats what he says in chapter 1, verse 2. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanity, all is vanity, all is meaningless. And there's this sense at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, where we get this context of a father speaking to a son, and he's, in a sense, calling, it's a, it's a warning, the entire book of Ecclesiastes is a warning away from vanity, away from things that are meaningless, to things that are joyful and meaningful. It's a cautionary tale of the failures of the world to give you any meaning. Anything that comes from under the sun, in and of itself, cannot bring you meaning or joy. The father speaking to his son about the meaning of life under the sun, teaching his son about what is important, teaching to have a childlike faith. Because what we forget as adults is what it feels like to be somewhat free of responsibilities, being innocent, being dependent on a father and a mother. And even Jesus says in Luke 18, what does he say? Come unto me like a child if one is to enter the kingdom of heaven. What is he speaking of? He's speaking of this complete dependence on God for everything. Like a child who's completely dependent on his parents for protection, for food, for safety, for a place to rest his head, or her head. Ecclesiastes is a description of a world without God. A description of a world without the salvation of Christ. A description of a world without the truth of God's revelation. A description of a world without the leading and empowerment of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of men and women. In a world where Christ Jesus conquered sin and death through his death and reigns in heaven through his church, all is not meaningless. Under the Son of God, not the Son, but under the Son of God, all is not vanity. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, in Christ we have hope in this life only. We are all people most to be pitied. Because our hope is not in the things of this world, it's in the things of God. This book is a warning against putting our hope in this life only. There is no delight in this life only. There is no truth in this life only. God, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and God's Word is necessary if there is to be hope in this life and the next. Without those things, without God, without His Son, without the Holy Spirit, without the Word of God, there is no truth, there is no hope, and there is no meaning in life. So point in searching for meaning outside of those four things. So I want to say kind of a big idea is to be wise, you need to become more like a child. To be wise, you need to become more like a child. So the first point is the failures of the creature. So, I'm under the understanding, and, and this is a very difficult book, okay? So uh, it's one of those books of the Bible where I think there's a lot of different viewpoints, and on, there's even disagreements on who wrote the book, right? I don't think it's Solomon, 
But Hale Ferber, who preached here on, on chapter one, argued that it was Solomon. So like, here's just a different, um, just, it's a difficult book, and, and so there's different viewpoints. And I think that the core, and the, the major core of the book is pretty pretty clear and, and distinct. But some other things are difficult. So, like, is the preacher, is he one that is saying things that are all right and good? And I would argue that I don't think he does. And I think there's a sense where... The preacher, the teacher here, is saying things that I don't actually agree with. And I think he fails in some of the things he's doing. He's trying to search for meaning, right, in the things of the world. And he will not find meaning in the things of the world. I agree with that. And this see churching and, and trying to find, as he says in the end of this chapter, delight in truth and the things under the sun. You will not find truth and you will not find delight in the things under the sun. Yes, the preacher is wise, right? He's a teacher, it says here. He's a student. He's a writer. He was very careful in his writing. He was very thoughtful in his writing. He was very clear in his weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. It says in verse 9, the preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The preacher sought delight in his observations about the life under the sun. He has no delight to offer, does he? He has very little delight you offer. What does he say in chapter 1, 13 and 14? That God has put man in an unhappy business. What does he say in verse 17 through 18? Wisdom and knowledge leads to sorrow. That's not very delightful. Pleasure and indulgent behavior is vanity. Wealth and honor in chapter 10 are meaningless and vanity. So he doesn't have a lot of things to say that I would say bring us to life. Hence why people are scared to read Ecclesiastes or teach through Ecclesiastes because they think the book is sorrowful. They think it's sad. They think it's a bummer. They think it's drudgery and dark. So what the light is given, no word of comfort is provided by the preacher. The preacher sought truth in his observation about life under the sun for all his vanity and his striving after winds. He says about seeking truth and seeking out knowledge and seeking out wisdom. He says it's all vanity and striving after the wind. He says in chapter two, verse uh, chapter three, verse nineteen, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of beast goes down to the earth? He can't even give us any truth about eternal life. He says, I don't know what will happen after this. I have no idea. I don't know if the beast goes one direction and man goes another. I have no idea. I have no words of comfort. I have no words of truth to tell you what happens after that. There's nothing better for a man, for a person, than that they should eat, drink, and find enjoyment in his toil. Yes, they are words of wise. Again, this is, a, this is the narrator speaking in verse 11, that the words of the wise are like goats. Goats are long rods with one or more points on the end of it, and it's used to stir cattle into motion. So it's not an, an instrument that is pleasant. And he uses the analogy, this is a, this is the, these are words of a shepherd. So we're not getting words like Psalm 23, that our shepherd has a rod and a staff, and he uses it to comfort me. He leads me to clear to waters and to, and to green grass. This shepherd is not leading us anywhere, really. He's prodding us. He's, he's causing us to be incited and to be stirred. He incites the ignorant to learn wisdom. He says that his wisdom is like nails firmly fixed, a firm establishment of good teaching. So this, his, this shepherd is, incites us with this prodding, with this poke. 
that it's, it's his, his wisdom is it's like a nail firmly fixed by one shepherd, a sheriff that incites and firmly establishes its sheep with force. Not a rod or staff that protects and comforts and leads. And what does the father say to them? He actually warns him against such wisdom. He warns him against faith and wisdom in the wise. So he has, we have 12 chapters of wisdom, and then the father says to the son, beware of wisdom. Beware of books of wisdom. Beware. Making many books, there is no end. Much study of the weariness of the flesh. There's an endless searching with no assurance, right? A continual observation, a continual searching for truth and not being able to find it under the sun. 2 Timothy 3.7, never satisfied with the answer given. I feel like the preacher is unsatisfied with a lot of the answers that are given. He, and you know people are like this, or maybe you know people that you're sharing the gospel with, and you just keep sharing information and content to them, and they have they just want to ask questions. They have no desire in answers. That's what Paul's saying here in 2 Timothy. Someone who's never satisfied with the answers given. A child, on the other hand, seeks answers to his or her question and trusts the source of the answer, right? When, when my child asks me a question, they don't then continue asking the same question. When I give them an answer, they're somewhat satisfied with the answer that I give. And so the father, talking to his son, kind of warns him over the over-reliance on the words of wise men and women. Even the preacher says this in chapter 7, 23 through 24. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off, and deep, very deep, who can find it out? The words of the wise man or woman is limited. It can't give you full understanding and knowledge about many subjects. This is Luther. He says, I am much afraid that universities will prove to be the greatest gates of hell unless they diligently labor and explain the Holy Scriptures, and engraving them in the hearts of youth. I advise no one to place his child where the Scriptures do not reign paramount. Every institution in which men are not consistently occupied with the Word of God must become corrupt. The words of the wise outside of Scripture could lead to corruption. And I think a lot of us, and a lot of, especially a lot of men, who enjoy philosophy, enjoy theology, we can almost spend our time so just continuing to read the, the words of men and women, and yet we neglect to read the words of Scripture. Thinking we're going to find wisdom in the words of men and women, and ignore the wisdom that is in God. You know, Russell Moore wrote a, an article about Bible quoters and not Bible readers. The Christians today are more concentrating on quoting Bible Verse, a verse of the Bible and not actually reading the Bible. Christians have a problem seeking the small, relevant wisdom from men and not the complete living wisdom from God. We're looking for solutions to our problems, right? We want solutions to our problems. So we go to the Bible or we go to people who are teachers of the Bible and we go to their books, we go to their articles so they'll give us those nuggets of solutions to our issues and we ignore the Bible. Solutions for finance, parenting, marriage, dieting, self-help, seeking comfort and meaning and things under the sun. We are trying to find solutions to our problems. We want comfort and meaning in the things under the sun. And so we go to wise teachers to give us all those ways to then have good, comfortable, successful life under the sun. And we 
school they ignore the Bible. Because it's hard to read the Bible. It's hard to read books of the Bible. It's hard to read chapters of the Bible and seek and study God's word for wisdom. Those books, those articles are not the living word of God, which comforts and brings truth and brings life and brings hope and grace. A child doesn't care about achieving some ends. They only care about enjoying and living under the protection and love of their father and mother. Like Charles Kane from Citizen Kane, humanity has lost their innocence. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, we have recognized our nakedness, and we search aimlessly to hide ourselves and fulfill our constant desire for more, to be satisfied, for our want to be satisfied. And we look for it under the sun, and there is no satisfied life under the sun. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, but the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life, good thing. It doesn't matter how much you have. If you do not have God, you have nothing. Adam and Eve in the garden were without want. There is innocent children who enjoy the pleasures of life under the Lordship and with wisdom of God. They sought more and lost their innocence. Life is a constant struggle to fix these loss with things, pleasures, wealth, and knowledge, and they fail. A child has no need of these things, only to live without fear under the Lordship and wisdom of their parents. And the Bible is calling us back to being a child under the total lordship and wisdom of God. Point number two, failures of the preacher. Number two, having your mind blown. So you have all of this stuff, and the narrator kind of summarizes it, right? Very simply, the words of the wise, it says here in verse 13, the end of all matters, all has been heard, all that has been said, all that has been made, fear God. It says, Simply fear God. The end of all matters, all has been heard. What truly matters will not be found in a tireless attempt to find, seek, or discover meaning under the sun. If you want to apply your heart to seek and to search for wisdom, do not look to the categories mentioned by the preacher. Instead, apply your heart to a higher source. And who is that higher source? Just God. Simple, direct, all matters have been heard. All that truly matters is fear and God. It's interesting in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 14, that the preacher talking about God is almost sometimes reluctant and dissatisfied with God's ways. He says this quite often about just being dissatisfied with God's world, being dissatisfied with God's strategies and his world. Same faith for man and for beast, same faith for the righteous and the wicked. Why would God do this? Why would he set up his world like this? And, there's a, and the father says to the son to return to trial-like wonder of God. God is great. Be in all of God's greatness. The wonders of his world, right? Look at the people in this room. That is an example of the wonders of God. The ch children in your life and run in your home and, and, and play in your backyard. Those are wonders of God. And be in all of God's wonder. His word. When we read his word and are studying his word, we're in awe and wonder of God. The warning here is not to lose the awe and wonder of God, because the consequence is finding awe and wonder in something else under the sun. And those things are not worth comparing to the greatness and power of God. Uh, there's, a, there's a song that I want to read the lyrics to. It's from a Beautiful Eulogy. And uh, it talks about the merciful. And um, I may not have time to read it all, but I want to encourage you to read it, because I think by reading about God's 
salvation in Christ. You read, if you read this, you're in awe of God. That he would save the undesirable. That he would save the undeserved. That he would show mercy and love to those who do not deserve it in any way. And that is unbelievable. That is a wondrous and all thing that God would do such a thing. The law, and we, we're just, sometimes we lose the wonder of his beautiful mercy. Like a child, we scream in excitement at God's beauty and greatness. We ignore everything else as vanity in comparison to him. And we recognize God's greatness in his power and his character, and we get lost in his mercy, we are just excited about God. We're in awe, we're in wonder, we're in excitement about who God is. When we have proper worship of God, it leads to proper conduct. When we have proper understanding of God, it leads to proper actions. You do not need more teaching or more study to understand this essential point here. The Word of God exposes you to God and immerses yourself in His Word. You will understand Him. You will be captivated by His greatness. You will then live your life properly, reflecting His character. And that, my friends, is all you truly need to know. It's all you need to know. You don't need to know necessarily how to be a better parent or how to be more successful with your finances. That's not what you need. What you need is to be in awe of who God truly is. And worship him properly. And that's what this father is saying to his son. Fear God. It all matters of things. It's to fear God and keep his commandments. Point number three is the Lord of the manor. Keep his commandments. A father desires for his son to know God and have the right relationship with God. The father has no desire for his son to be wealthy. He has no desire for his son to be powerful or full of honor. He has no desire for his son to have great deeds or trophies or rewards. His desire for his son is to worship God properly and to follow God's commands. To be in the proper relationship with God is the most important thing for this father to his son. Not how to be wealthy, how to be rich, how to be powerful, how to be successful in the things that he does, but to fear God and have proper conduct to follow his commands. The whole duty of man, nothing else matters under the sun. Parents, students, you, do you believe that God's word is good enough? Taking God at his word, living in obedience to his revelation, whatever the cost, because you know deep down in your bones that God will always do what he says, that his speaking is his doing. When he speaks, he does. And to trust in God's word. His words are not weak. His promises are not empty. His instructions are not pointless. God's word is power. He created the heavens and the earth with his word. His word established salvation through the life of his son. His word is power. And that's what you should follow. So I want to end talking about the scene nonsense. And that comes from Lord of the Rings. I know Gabe Green Bay knows what I'm talking about. He's a huge Lord of the Rings fan. But Tom Bombadil, he's out in the movies. Not read the books, you don't know who I'm talking about. Tom Bobadil is my favorite character in Lord of the Rings. And there's a point in the story, this is after Frodo and, and, and Sam and, and Pippin and Mary have left the, left, left the Shire and they're journeying towards uh, that, that bar where they, where they meet Aragorn. And they, they go through the forest and they have an incident with an old willow tree. And Tom Bobadil saves Pippin and Mary from the tree. And there's a point where they basically are having this conversation with one another that this man named Tom Bombadil, who saves Pippin and Mary, talks nonsense. Like, he sings nonsense. 
He says, uh, hey dong, merry dong, ring-a-dong, dillo, ring-a-dong, hop-along, fa-la, the willow, tom-bomb, jolly tom-tom, bombadillo. He says, come, hey, come, dear dolly, hop along, my hearties, hobbits, ponies, all, we are fond of parties. Now let the fun begin, let us sing together. They're like, that's all nonsense, what is he talking about? But then they start to discover something about him, that there's something, like he's not singing nonsense. They start to recognize that there's more to Tom Bombadale than some guy who sings nonsense, that he is now, the, they say here, now the joy that was hidden in the songs we heard it more plainly. They sure to understand that this man was not singing nonsense. He was a man full of joy. And he was an ancient man. He was a man full of wisdom. And he sang songs of nonsense. He sang, sang songs of joy. Old Tom Bombadil is a merry fellow. Bright blue is his jacket, and boots are yellow. Who is Tom Bombadil? Is what Fredo asked his wife and she says he's the master of the woods, the water of the hills. He has no fear. Tom Bobadil is a master. He's made of wisdom. He's made of power. He's made of joy. Heed not nightly noise. Fear no gray willows, he tells the hobbits, who are fearful. Because in the movie, they're being chased by the black riders. And they find comfort and rest in the house of Tom Bobadil. And he tells them to have no fear. Rest your weariness. Don't fear the night. He sings songs of nonsense, but what they really are are songs of the ancient. They, they rec he recognized what is truly and what is truly wise. And what he is personifying here is he recognizes that how the world came into existence and what is truly good and what is truly joyful and what is truly true. And I think I'm thinking through this, and I'm thinking of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where Paul says, for the words of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. The world thinks the cross is nonsense. They think our songs are nonsense. They think our singing and our praise is nonsense. Why don't you busy yourself with figuring out how you get a better life outside these songs? These songs are nonsense. The cross is nonsense. You read your son to tell me that your salvation comes from a person who died on a cross? That is nonsense. For the foolishness of God is wider than man. The weakness of God is stronger than man. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where it says that you are a temple of the Lord. You're not, you have now been bought by Christ, he says here in verse 19. Or do you not know the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. But you are brought with Christ to glorify your God in your body. The world says, why would you do that? Do whatever feels good. Do whatever comes to mind. If you feel like it, then do it. That is what is right and that is the truth. The Bible says that's not true. What is true is that you are a temple of the Lord. You were bought by the blood of Christ. You are one who fears God and follows his commandments. And that is what true wisdom is. And the world says that's nonsense. That's nonsense. To the world, the wonder of God through the cross is nonsense. To the world, living a life according to God's word is nonsense. Yet it is the life of wisdom. A childlike faith who fears God and keeps his commandments is the life of wisdom. The world says it's nonsense, but it's not nonsense. Have no fear. Rest in the arms of the master of the house. Find comfort in the songs that the world considers nonsense because they are the songs of wisdom, the ancient songs that remind us what is delightful and true. 
Christ Jesus came for the world to save sinners, and I'm before my That is the words of wisdom, and people in this world think it's nonsense, but it's one that brings us joy. And that's all that truly matters in the world. Now, how much money you have, how powerful you are, and how good you are at your job, how many trophies and rewards you have, and all the pleasures that you've experienced, none of those things bring meaning. They are nonsense. True wisdom is the one who fears God and keeps his commandments. I'm going to conclude with this. And some of you don't know me, but some of you do know me. I'm a pastor, but I'm one of those pastors that, yeah, I understand, like, I'm a theologian in the sense that I read read the Bible and have thoughts about God's Word and about theology. But to be honest, I'm kind of a reluctant theologian. I don't particularly enjoy talking about it all that much. And I think there's there's a conflict that I have. Sure, I enjoy the reading. I enjoy the conversations to a point. But I find myself being afraid that I'm going to lose the, the wonder and the love of God by studying so much and studying deeper and deeper. That I'm going to lose the romanticism of the gospel, right? That I am a, that I am a, I'm a child who has sinned against God and he's saved me through Jesus. That there's this joy in the deeper meanings of things. And, and sometimes I don't want to lose that. I'm afraid of losing that. I'm afraid that I'm going to... And then I'm only going to think with my mind and not with my heart. And I want to love God. I want to be in wonder and awe of Him. When I sing a worship song, I want—I really want to have those like those goosebumps come to my hands and to my arms because I recognize that the gospel is unbelievable and be in awe of it. And when I think about the deeper things of life, and I love football. But I think I really don't love football. I don't love the fellowship that comes through it. Like, I love interacting with my dad and my brothers and my friends who enjoy it as well, other men. I love the companionship. I love the gospel, which creates fellowship with my brothers and sisters. There's joy that happens when we think about the gospel in Jesus Christ and how it creates a fellowship. It creates a, 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 a brotherhood and a sisterhood. And I recognize that that's what life's about. It's about recognizing the beauty of the gospel and what comes because of the gospel. This desire less for more things and desire more Christ, which leads to wisdom and joy. If you fear God and keep his commandments, the result of that is, care, is carefree and happily singing under the Son of God. And we sing about his gospel. We cry in thankfulness and celebration of his gospel. We are moved to tears because of the gospel. And we're full of joy because of the gospel. And we sing songs of nonsense like Tom Bombadil. And the world goes, that's nonsense. And it brings us joy. It brings us so much joy. And we actually look like children. Like we look like smiling children at play when we worship God. Because we recognize that all that really matters in life is the fear and the wonder of God. And to follow his word. But that's all that really matters. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. And uh, Lord, I, I pray, Lord, that, that it was understandable that, that your word is calling us to childlike faith. That we get to this made this, this really long, cha- 12 long chapters of this book, and it ends with this simple command fear God and follow his commandments. It's almost too simple. But really, Lord, when we really narrow things down, when we really focus things down. We recognize that this is the wisest thing that we could ever do. 
to fear God and follow his commandments, to trust you, Lord, to be completely dependent on you, to get our joy from you, Lord. And Lord, I pray for my, my friends here, Lord, that they would not get in this trap of finding meaning in the things under the sun, but instead they will find meaning in Jesus Christ alone. They would no longer toil and strive and try to find satisfaction and try to find meaning and try to find truth and try to find delight and joy in the things of this world, but they would truly just get it from you. Pray for the students here, Lord. I pray that as they go off to the college and study and, and try to get enough skills and get a vocation or a job outside of college, they can almost be so dedicated to what comes next with their work and, and totally forget that everything's about God. It's all about being in awe and wonder of you, Lord, and finding our joy in you. And I pray for them, Lord. For those here who do not know you and who have tried so much in their lives to find truth and meaning through what they did or how they raised their kids or their relationships or how they felt that day, but Lord, and they totally ignore that that all comes through God and through Christ. Or that you would pierce them, that you would convict them of their sins, and they would cry out to you for forgiveness and truth, to be saved from their sins, to be a child of God. We love you, Lord. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. If I can get bitten and uh, give a bunch of